world. Borealis. Paradigm expansion. Greetings from the north. And welcome to a new forum, this time aptly called Enemy of the Deep State, a conversation with dark journalists. Tonight's guest is also known as Daniel List, an independent reporter and filmmaker who coined the term dark journalism to introduce crucial areas of research and investigation that the mainstream media refuses to touch. Daniel's background is as a freelance journalist, senior producer, copywriter and editorial manager for different companies, among else Apple, AOL, Shutterfly and Hotwire. He's worked with advertising, social media marketing, public relations, TV and web content. A few years ago, he launched the system-critical program Dark Journalist, which is as innovative as it is popular in the field of investigative journalism programming. Topics he covers are the black budget economy, deep politics, classified military programs, covert intelligence programs, corporate geoengineering, media cover-up and the impact of the UFO phenomenon, which to a considerable extent dovetails with our own focus subjects. He's appeared on major news shows like Coast to Coast AM, provided breaking stories, interviewed world-famous personalities, and his video channel has reached millions of views. Dark Journalist has an engaging interview style that allows for in-depth explorations and shockingly honest coverage of complex and controversial subjects. As such, he is a part of that segment of emerging alternative media that is challenging the mainstream corporate news, contributing to rendering them superfluous and obsolete. He is, therefore, a natural choice to sit down and have a decent conversation with as part of our series on cutting-edge dissidents. Welcome to the Forum, Daniel. It's great to be here, Al. Yeah, it's very nice to have you on. Actually, we have been considering doing this thing for years. Uh-huh. And um, but for, you know for some reason we postponed it never happened but one of the triggers actually that helped us finally get our heads out of our asses <laughs> was your <laughs> your show oh, because yeah. uh, because when I noticed that it dawned upon me that hey we live now in a day and age where there is a market for what we would maybe describe as quality or deeper programming on these subjects. Because you remember back in the day, who, who were the first people out? Is those who are big now, like Project Camelot and stuff like that. Yeah. But, you know, to my uh, critical mind, that just wasn't good enough. So when, when you entered the show, and not only that, you also immediately addressed one of the pet subjects that we have, which is Breakaway Civilization Space Program. Right. And that was so encouraging and impressive. So uh, a natural question I, I want to, us to start with then is, um, you know, how you personally discovered these things and how you got into that on a personal basis. 
Well, yeah, it's a great question. I, um, I guess I was always something of a dark journalist. It's just that I, I kept a lot of the subjects and the stories I was going after to the side and built them up over time because I was seeing patterns. So when I'd done freelance journalism in technology or in finance, I came across these trends that didn't seem to go anywhere. Um, some of them were like housing fraud or technological surveillance. And I, I found that they were somewhat untouchable in the atmosphere of the media organizations that I dealt with. Mm. So I started to wonder about that. And as time uh, passed, I started to see that the pattern was, you know, this 800 pound gorilla in the room where you really couldn't go after certain topics. And I found that when I examined some of the practices of major newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times here in America, mm. that they were using investigative processes that were somewhat limited. That is, even when they were going deep on a story or exposing something, they were leaving vital trails to that story out. Mm. And so I started to formulate, you know, are they under pressure? Do they not see it? And when I started to examine it, I realized there was a whole field of information that was they were kind of leaving there because either they didn't know how to deal with it or they were being prevented uh, from dealing with it. So, you know, that's really what got me to dark journalism. Mm -hmm. Would you say that your impression is that the omissions are, you know, I mean, let me rephrase that. To what extent are the omissions deliberate, intentional? Uh, well, I think on that higher level, let's say the kind of executive decision level, that they, they are a lot more intentional than when you get down into the editing staffs, you know, and when you get down into, you know, when you go from the publisher level down into the editorial management, there's a big gap there. Mm. So uh, certainly you have to look at it as, you know, the higher up you go, the more access to information And then at that very highest level, they understand that to ask questions doesn't serve their ultimate purpose if they want to grow as a media organization, for example. Mm. So then you have these other guys who, as we get further down that editorial chain, you know, assistant editors and so on, they start to see, well, there are some subjects I can't go after. You know, I think about a guy like Jefferson Morley, a very interesting uh, Washington Post investigative reporter. And I followed his story very closely because he'd come across some fascinating information about uh, CIA handling of Cuban groups in the early 60s and how this was associated with Lee Harvey Oswald, who, of course, is the alleged assassin of JFK. Mm. And um, a lot of this information that he had showed the relationship to the CIA, to these Cuban groups, to Oswald. And so it was the actual string that researchers were looking for for so long about CIA involvement with Oswald mm. and he you know he tells the story where he goes to his editors and they're like yeah we we can't deal with that story and there's no real explanation it's just that's it uh, you know? maybe the buzzword was uh, Oswald yeah <laughs> exactly I, I think they have some kind of uh, if not a, a actual list they do have some kind of associations where they just we don't go there like you said yeah well they wanted to treat it it's very interesting in his conversation he said that they treated it like oh so who killed jfk you know they wanted to kind mm. of 
pop quiz answer, <laughs> sensationalistic headline. Mm. And barring that, they didn't want to examine the close relationship of the CIA to those groups back then. Now we're talking 50 years ago. Mm. So um, I found this very interesting because the Washington Post, of course, is very famous for exposing big stories like Watergate and Iran-Contra mm. over the years. So you start to wonder, what is it that has slid in their ability to, you know, kind of articulate these subjects and go after these subjects. Mm. And it seems like from that little example that I was seeing that the quality of media, although it was never completely transparent, let's face it, mm. but over the last 20 years, say, has really fallen to an all-time low. And if we continue to operate in that zone, you know, then it's completely corporate state-controlled media. And we're very close to that now, mm. which why I think this style of journalism you call elements of alternative media, um, you know, sometimes get lobbed off as conspiracy theorists, but whatever you want to call that, it really is a vital piece of the puzzle because without it, we wouldn't get to the real stories. And the, the alternative media um, at times can force the major media to look at things that are completely uncomfortable and completely unacceptable to them. Mm. And that's vital, uh, I think, if we're going to get a transparent version of reality here because uh that seems to be what we're lacking now in this point of the 21st century here we are mm -hmm. uh, this is something i think we will have to to touch more upon as our conversation unfolds but i want to i want to go a little back to you personally because it's my obligation now as the interviewer <laughs> the tables are turned right <laughs> and uh, i think a lot of people are interested in uh, knowing a little more about you 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 did uh, suggest here that you have experience in uh, journalism yes yeah well I've, I've i've spent a number of years um in freelance journalism around political topics around technology and i, sp I specifically spent time covering uh apple related news oh and, uh, you know, observing there also the trends that were going on as far as surveillance was concerned, mm. as far as, you know, the home entertainment idea with Apple and Microsoft becoming more and more invasive to the individual. And I think oh, yeah. something along the lines of Catherine Albrecht's early work, maybe around 2007, had something of an impact on me because I started to understand the technology aspect was not only about empowering the individual the way it was presented, but it, it had this other aspect, which is these companies wanted more and more data on how people operated in their day-to-day -day lives, mm. and they weren't really disclosing that they were getting that information. Now, you know, it took all these years to get us to Edward Snowden for people to understand that their calls are being listened to and their emails are being logged at a facility in Bluffdale by the NSA. Mm. But these things were slowly, you know, it's like the penny was dropping slowly. And uh, so if you go back even to 2008, when the major crash happened around the financial centers, questions started to pop up in people's minds that weren't really there before. And I think that that's very important, is that very often it's a crisis or something that will jar people's imagination and allow them to kind of look at a bigger picture. And their awareness and their paradigms change as a result of that. Mm. And that's what I think we saw in that period, 2007, 2008. And that's really the point in time where I decided to start 
kind of focusing my work on dark journalism. Mm. And although dark journalists uh, didn't actually come out till 2013, so there's a gap in time there, but most of that time was spent really developing um, these concepts that would help me to present this information because very often, I think in alternative media, what you see is they have the good root idea, but they're missing very vital pieces of facts mm. and they're losing a lot of linkages in the information. Mm. You know, one of the things, uh, and we're going to talk about secret space program, one of the things that comes up in that discussion is there's so much good information about the fact that we have a secret space program. But over and over again, what you'll see is the news around it is, you know, in the alternative media, oh, this guy comes out, he says he was part of a troop that went to Mars. Yeah, yeah. That's not enough, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually not doing us any service. It doesn't do us any good, no, because it's a claim. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting if enough of those claims come forward and you can string together patterns, Mm. then that's a good thing to look at. But, um, you know, to sort of posit an entire secret space program based on someone who says they were a captain of a fleet on Mars isn't uh, isn't good journalistic direction. However, some of the things, uh, you know, and I always point to Gary McKinnon's case, mm-hmm. uh, Gary McKinnon, who was the UK quote hacker who hacked into NASA and got some of these very important, uh, he was looking for information on UFOs. Mm. But what he got and one of the most vital things he took out of that experience of looking at, into those servers was that we had an off-world officer's list. Mm. That's important. Yeah. Uh, I think the fact that they wanted to extradite him from the UK, uh, you know, t- here to the US, and that there was a real major case, and even came up at one point during a discussion with Obama wow. and Cameron. Uh, live press conference, I and mean, that's big level, you know. Really? I, I've not yeah. seen that. How did he handle uh, that? Well, it came up. One of the uh, people in the press there volunteered the question, and uh, Cameron kind of passed it off to Obama, and Obama said, well, you know, we'll attempt to extradite this individual through the normal chains. You know, I'm sure that their State Department and our State Department can discuss these things. There's nothing really to add, you know. How embarrassing for Obama. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Mr. Secret Space himself, right? Yeah. Um, But I would say that uh, that was very important. Not that anything came out in that conversation. Just the mere fact it was raised uh, is very vital and shows you, see, there is a track where we can examine these things from Mm. that has a factual linked bases and does not rely simply on testimony. I'm willing to listen to uh, people who have this testimony, by the way. I just am not going to formulate a real thesis about the secret space program based on uh, somebody coming out and saying, you know, I'm I'm part of uh, uh, an off-world officer's fleet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to note uh, completely off topic though uh funny synchronicity because you were mentioning Catherine albright yeah and uh, my notes for this conversation is made on these yellow um i don't know what you call it in english stickers maybe that comes with the windows yes. yeah. yeah and uh, as a leftover from my last notes there is just one the rest is concerning this and that is 
add as a potential guest Catherine Albright. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> I hear you mentioning her. Well, I'll tell you. So that, that's a funny, yeah. What's interesting is she was the second guest on uh, my show, Dark Journalist. Oh, you already interviewed her. I'll yeah. make sure to listen to that. Okay. Mm. It was a very early one, and uh, she was really uh, a very focused individual. And I've seen her speak on a number of occasions, but. She's somebody, I think, who really understands how the technology and the surveillance works mm, mm. and goes a lot deeper than people who, you know, very often you get people who are too technical mm. and just describe it in such a technical way that nobody gets it. Or you get somebody who's just railing against the system and doesn't have any of the technical facts. Well, she's a good yeah. place. Uh, I think she's good right in the middle there. Wow. Hmm. Well, then then we have to have her on. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, well, uh, you know, it's interesting also to learn that you had a long incubation uh, period, <laughs> just as us. Yes, right. <laughs> that's, that's encouraging. <laughs> But you didn't have money to look to. I mean, who, who were you inspired from? I know this is a very cliche-ish question but i think it's interesting you did mention some of course but um, did you see any did you notice that the internet actually were moving in a direction where it became a useful tool for cyber dissidents oh that's a really good question the first thing that pops into my mind is a very early association uh, when i met john mack who was the harvard professor who believed in the abduction phenomena around ufos mm. Uh, he was a fascinating character, and I think he was an early influence on my thinking because it was a, an interesting contrast and a nice breakthrough when we had this guy who was a tenured professor at Harvard who wanted to talk about UFOs and the abduction phenomena. Somehow that and, and dealing with him and some people around him, that really uh, turned on a certain light bulb in my mind about how this information could go beyond the frontiers of just a few fringe groups understanding it one way or another. Um, so I started to see that there there could be a breakthrough there on these other levels. So I think that that's an early influence. In terms of who was out there uh, who really inspired me, I mean, Catherine Austin Fitz is someone who I actually ran across uh, when I was doing writing around technology. And um, her work was certainly an influence on me because I saw at once that she was a very vital uh, person who understood, you know, having been in government, how it operated. Mm. And she also had come out of Wall Street. Um, you know, she was a former managing partner in uh, Dylan Reed and Company, which was basically, you know, one of the biggest at the time on Wall Street. That was kind of the Goldman Sachs of the 80s. So for her to come out and be talking about a lot of these alternative subjects, also, I think, was a good influence. Um, but I've been reading other things along the way. Joseph Farrell, who you did a very interesting program with here. Uh, you know, we've done, I think we've, we've done four or five episodes with him now. He's just a fascinating author. But his work uh, also I found very inspiring because I felt like these individuals had the ability to backtrack mm. the thinking that comes out of these other levels. And, you know, I think that You know, basically, we have all these ideas about what are what are these elite groups? What are the covert groups? Who are they? And so there's a number of names that go on. You know, one of the names is NWO, the New World Order. Mm. 
We have uh, you know, breakaway civilization you mentioned earlier. This is something that's come up in the last few years. I think it's a very fitting title. Uh, the deep state is something that Professor Peter Dale Scott brought out, and that talks about the deep political connections and the forces that operate through politics that are not seen by that public state. They operate underneath, and that includes uh, the CIA and organized crime and some of these other elements mm. that are locked in there um, with the political process, but it's not something that we see and understand, let's say, in the major media for the average person. So the other two would be the cabal, <laughs> which I think is, is maybe one of the weaker titles out there because it's just like, who is that? What is that? We don't understand anything mm -hmm. about that. Um, but the idea is there, again, the same. And then the one that Fitz used was Mr. Global. Oh, I thought you were going to say shadow government. Oh, shadow government. Well, you could. You could uh, certainly shadow government. New World Order, I think of those mm. as pretty much the same, a similar yeah. type of title, yeah. Mm. But Mr. Global was the one that Fitz used, and I thought, this is interesting, because it represents a global interest, it sounds like a corporate name, you know, mm. this is a good This is a good way. So I was trying to figure out, how do we measure these different names, who are, who are they referring to? Mm. So, you know, I broke it out this way, where the New World Order is something that everyone points to, and that's something that we've been trying to accomplish, apparently, through the globe from the United States and England since the First World War, which is a new oh. world order, a kind of global government. So you, you actually dated to before the Nazis? Yes. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think that certainly a lot of the things that were in the air were an influence on the Nazis, but the Nazis have an incredible sweeping effect uh, in that period from 33 to 45 as to how the you know governance of the world is going to go from there. But I think when you get into these five names, uh, NWO, Breakaway Civilization, Deep State, the Cabal, and Mr. Global, in there, there are separations. So we're trying to talk about a covert power that's not operating publicly. We can't see them and identify them, but they are operating behind the scenes, and the question is, what is it that they're trying to accomplish? Mm. Uh, and that's really what fuels the kind of research that I do as dark journalist. How do we break those categories out, and what are the forces? How do we identify the forces behind the things that we're seeing? Is this how you would define dark journalism? Yeah, well, dark journalism really, um, if I gave you a basis for discussing some of these things that pertain to dark journalism, I'd say it's, you know, they're patterns. So I've seen patterns of reporting. So the first pattern is the official story, and that's quickly supported by the media. And uh, you take a big event like the crash of 2008, for example, where they'll say, well, we had some derivatives people and everything's okay now. It's just a bad thing. You know, mm. that's the official story. And, um, you know, in a nutshell, and other stories around 9-11 or even going back to Iran-Contra, for example, this, the simple story from the official story is just you know, non-plausible, basically. It's to save the institution. So then you have, that's supported by the media, almost carte blanche. I mean, very little variation there. Mm. But what happens is there's a second pattern, which is an alternate version of events that's presented by good journalistic researchers and usually the very strong witness testimony, uh, circumstantial evidence, etc. That is very often called the conspiracy theory, and, and dark journalism certainly shares a lot in common with that second part. But then the third part is the most interesting part, and I think it's where uh, dark journalism 
can really help to separate out what's going on in terms of how these things are reported. Mm. The third pattern I call third force. It's what, often what, an... Excuse me, what did you call it? Oh, third force. Right, right. Mm. Yeah, um, so it's an unusual, it's, it's often bizarre version, and it picks up on elements of pattern two, but it intentionally uh, is placed there to discredit the second pattern, which is kind of like the conspiracy theory. So I call it junk conspiracy very often. Oh, um, right, right. Like, yeah. like limited hangouts. Yes, yes, exactly. If you know that um, term, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, so, you know, a few examples are no plans were used in 9-11. Mm. Now, you see how if people had um, something you know in mind about 9-11, they did some research, they understood that the official story, so many people... Uh, including the actual counsel to the 9-11 Commission, said the official story doesn't make any sense. Mm. However, when people look into it, there's a group of researchers, uh, including architects and engineers, who look into that story, and they try to find faults, and they try to see where you know they can give good documentation versus the facts that were presented. Now, that, that force there, that second strata, is very important research. However, this third force comes up very often, and says there are no plans. So you can see how it tends to discredit the second version of events because the third force people don't want to associate with. They're like, well, are you crazy? You know, um, <laughs> of course there were planes. How many witnesses do you want? So, you know, and they're like, oh, it was a hologram. You know, nothing happened. That, that type of third force activity is really something we have to get at because it has two uh, different roots. One of those roots, of course, is just somebody goes out there and makes a wild claim. All right, that's fine. That's actually a very small amount of what we see in this third force activity. Mm. The major thrust of the third force activity is planted by intelligence groups who are linked to the media, and they intentionally throw these things out there. You know, I went back and looked at some of the earlier stories, like the JFK assassination. I've done a lot of research on that because I think we can after years, you can start to get to see how things were presented and covered up and how they used the media. You can use it as a good kind of example, as an older case, because you get more information as, as the years have come on. But one of the things, uh, one of the stories that came out that was a third force story around the JFK assassination um, was the driver shot JFK. Yeah, I've heard that. You know? mm. Okay, so you have this whole thing. So that gets people starting to think, oh, well, you know. I, I give up, you know, I can't, there's no way to figure out what actually happened. That's the vital piece of third force activity, and I think it's so active when these stories come up now that we have to start to identify it and say, you know, the important thing I think that dark journalism can do is we can look at a story and we can say, that's third force, mm. that's junk conspiracy, that does have, has nothing to do with what we're trying to get at. You know, it's neither the official story nor the conspiracy theory it's junk conspiracy. Mm, mm. And that, that is an important thing I think we need to start to do to delineate, you know, what's going on because the Internet is flooded with information. So really, we need to be able to adopt this filter. And people are always saying, well, we need a filter on the Internet. Here's the filter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the official story, generally bunk. They're going to say things in there that, you know, mix lies with the truth. But very often the official story is not the real deal. Uh, you know, if it is, great and we have no problem, but 99 times out of 100, it's not. And then the secondary story, the conspiracy theory. A lot of good researchers are in that category, so that's a category we can build from. Mm. 
Um, but the junk conspiracy very often ruins that second version. And so that's the entire pattern for me when I look at it. That's what I examined. That's what I saw over and over again. And it was such a pattern. I felt like it was ridiculous that we hadn't, you know, there was no one had pointed this out in this way before. And yeah. I said, you know, it's so bizarre when I look at it that this is obviously the thing that happens over and over and over again, all the way from the JFK assassination through the UFO cover up through Iran-Contra, through Watergate, through the 90s, NAFTA and GATT, you know, going through these ages and the major things that have happened on the political scene, uh, when we get up to the 9-11, again, they're using the same pattern. And some of the things that we see now, a lot of the false flag activity that we see, how often do we see a story come up like this uh, Virginia shooting, for example, that happened? And there were, um, you know, it was a television news reporter who was um, killed there by an ex-employee and uh, it's a terrible situation. But again, instantly on top of it were these overlays of third force activity. Mm-hmm. And the third force activity was, Hey, they're just actors. Um, so, you know, and it's interesting because they're mixing things there that are important to look at because there's a professor named James Tracy who pointed out that crisis actors are very often hired for different types of events. Mm. And and they've been exposed occasionally, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it is important. But what happens is it gets used over and over again so that suddenly, you know, the media, whoever this third force person is doing the job for the media for them because they're making the people who look into the secondary part of an event when it happens look foolish Mm. by placing this third force really far out story in there. So that's something that needs to be identified and halted in a sense, because then there's no way that we're going to get to the, the real deal when these stories happen. If we have this whole functioning process out there, and obviously it's very well funded because you open up your Facebook and boom, 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 there it is. Mm, mm. So the third force activity, the far out stuff, the junk conspiracy is trying to basically contaminate the real research that is against the official story. And I think that's an important pattern to observe in all modern reporting. Mm, indeed. Oh, oh, there, oh there, there's so many <laughs> things from what you <laughs> yeah. just said that we could continue with. But um, I've noted a couple of things. First of all, to your uh, the definitions you're using here, very, very good. I've I've had similar thoughts, but not as organized and clearly as I think you you you've even uh, baptized them with your own terms here. But what you call third force is usually what I've regarded as disinformation. Yes. And but there's junk in the second step too, unfortunately, and that's what I refer to as misinformation. When when people simply either they're intellectually lazy or they're just badly informed. Or you often see that their emotions um, run amok, and so they get a little clouded perspective. And very often it's a psychological phenomenon that intelligence services hardly needs to do anything about. Mm -hmm. The fact that if you have a rather mainstream paradigm, 
and you do uh, you know realize something for me when it came to the ufos it was actually I, w i was interested in ufos when i was young but then at a very primitive level and eventually i realized you know what does it matter it means nothing to me and my own <laughs> uh, you know development is and and i i like many other who you know are bright enough to handle it it was dismissed as uh, wild stuff foolishness a cult uh, but then i got a renaissance when i saw i think it was david serida's presentation of the nasa ufos uh -huh. then i realized you know i can't dismiss this anymore this is such an in integral part of our reality so that was for me a mind blower but many people can have many uh, moments that turns around the paradigm on, on specific issues like you mentioned 9-11 many people <laughs> after 9-11 have waken up but the problem is that they often lose their critical ability because they okay Everything I thought was <laughs> right is wrong and the opposite. Yes. And then they buy into the wildest scenarios. And that's where we have a good market for misinformation. People who sincerely believe the, the most uh, derailing uh, notions and doesn't do us any favors. And, and so you get uh, also programs like, well, I don't want to mention anyone, but there is a <laughs> lot of, of junk out there. So I think, I think a very big problem is that people need to grow up and they need to be able to distinguish between intentionally planted disinformations, like, like the concept of Illuminati. I'm, I'm so glad you didn't yes. mention that. It's a yes. typical derailment from, from an interesting uh, conversation. But you mentioned CIA and intelligence services. And I think that I, I'm so amazed, actually, of that, how they managed to get information out before the Internet, like this book, CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. Uh -huh. which is uh, a paramount production, I think, in, in, uh, in this literature. And, you know, researchers uh, and academicians as Carol Quigley. Mm -hmm. So um, I, think, I think you're on, right on track here. But uh, let's, uh, let's entertain the darker side of this. You know as well as I do that many, many so-called journalists are on the CIA payroll. Yes. And uh, the conspiracy thing is documented now to be a planted word that they used with huge success from JFK and onwards. But when it comes to handle dissidents, uh, they ha and not just dissidents, by the way, but anyone who, who threatens the, the status quo, they have a varied way to handle it. And one of them, in the, at least in the olden days, was simply to make people disappear. Yes. Oh, yes. What about, what about your own role? Are you ever, I, won't, I don't know if I want to use the word worried here, but um, uh, how do you regard your own safety simply? Yeah, right. I don't plan on disappearing. But, <laughs> <laughs> or, or suiciding. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I think it's an important thing to mention. Anyone who goes in to expose uh, the types of things we're talking about runs the risk of being interfered with. And there are various levels of being interfered with. Um, you know, one of the classic cases, of course, is Gary Webb, who uh, put out the fascinating book called Dark Alliance in the 90s. And that book was the blueprint, basically, for understanding how the CIA used the Contras and drug running mm. in the late 80s uh, for a variety of reasons and uh, to kind of influence Central America. But one of the things that happened to him was he got all the data out 
and this is 1996, very early internet action here. Yeah. And uh, he, when he started to run into problems, originally the newspaper he was working for in San Jose, they, they put out his stories, and uh, it was causing quite a firestorm. As a matter of fact, the CIA director at the time had to come out to Los Angeles to, you know, kind of give a meeting to the community to say, hey, this stuff isn't true. Hmm. But, uh, in fact, Gary Webb had the goods on this, and so when his newspaper uh, withdrew support from him, he quickly put all the stuff up on the Internet, very smart thing, and probably saved his life up to a point, because we know we lost Gary just a few years later, but one of the interesting things, I think, about what they did with him is they actually made it impossible for him to get a job after that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fired from the newspaper, moves into a small local newspaper, and the only thing they can give him there is classified ads. You know, his name has just been dragged through the mud. Mm. And um, over and over again, we see these things. Now, a movie came out, actually, last year about this called Kill the Messenger, and, you know, showing that over and over again, all the things that he brought up were proven correct over time. And even having sources inside the media saying, yeah, we did. We actually took him down, you know. And so there's so much in that story and it's so powerful. But I think uh, what happened with him, they said at the end, was that he committed suicide because he, well, it's a variety of reasons. But the important thing is that it was a very suspicious looking death. Yeah. And this we see over and over again. In the early 90s, there was Danny Casolaro, who was killed over his uh, octopus research, which got into the same types of forces Mm. and these kind of deep state forces. So they don't like being examined. And if they get up to a point where they think you're going to really reveal something, then there's a program in place for sure. Mm. But I discussed this with Peter Dale Scott, who coined the term deep state and deep politics. And uh, he... Really, you know, his work, he's been so examined by the CIA and the NSA, uh, and they have kept such surveillance on him that his attitude was he wasn't so concerned about the CIA and the NSA uh, doing surveillance on his work as he was about the contractors that they outsourced to, Mm. like Booz Allen Hamilton, who are, you know, acting kind of with no constitutional authority, and it's just a lawless group. And they may fudge details or do whatever because, you know, they get paid more that way or whatever it happens to be. But he felt that that was the real kind of abrogation of the Constitution there. So, you know, that really represented a whole different level than just some federal agency looking at the work he was doing. Mm. I think when it comes to alternative research, uh, you might see people trying to sway your research one way or another. And certainly there are dangers depending on the kind of story that you're looking at. Yeah, it's not that long ago that an alternative uh, journalist was killed. I forgot his name now, but um, it was a famous case. I think it was last year. Do you know who I'm uh, speaking of? Yes. Well, there were several, actually. Um, one of them had done a story for Rolling Stone who had, um, yeah. you know, he had exposed the Pentagon, basically their activities in Afghanistan and actually got a, uh, a general sort of uh, taken off main detail there. Uh, So there were a lot of things that were going on in that story, and certainly it sounds like he was targeted um, and taken out, if you really look into it. However, uh, there's also um, the story of the director, Ridley Scott, who had gone through this entire process of doing 
movies like Enemy of the State and really bring this information out. Mm. And what happened really was that, um, you know, under very, very unusual circumstances, he died. And he, they claimed, um, I have heard this, that he was working on a movie about drug running at the time. Mm. So, um, you know, we have to wonder, um, I'm sorry, it was Tony Scott, of course, Ridley Scott is his brother, they're two famous directors. Oh, right, right. Yeah, it's yeah, Tony yeah, Scott. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I like both their movies uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, so we do see that if, you, if you're going to expose something like that, you, you do run into certain types of danger. What I see over and over again, however, in the alternative community is uh, something I don't appreciate, which is people constantly claiming harassment left and right. Uh, that, you know, you have to really understand that – on the level of the work that you do, uh, there's going to be a certain amount of electronic harassment or a certain amount of electron electronic surveillance from these intelligence agencies. Mm. But not everything that happens that goes wrong, like a flat no, tire right, or anything else, right, is that. Yeah. And so I see that. So when I see that, um, very often, you know, I say to myself, well, th- those people are starting to believe their own hype, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So really, I keep it very, very clear. You know, I think within the bounds of journalistic investigation, uh, there are dangers, small and large. So I guess that's the best way to answer your question. Yeah, keeping your feet firmly placed on the ground is important because I think one of the programs they have is to drive people crazy. That's the best way to discredit them. They don't have to take the bother of killing them. Uh, When you mentioned directors, I was also thinking about De Palma because uh, Hoagland has more than uh, intimated that there was foul play there because his brother was uh, into some research that uh, is an area of what Hoagland and, and Farrell and others have talked about. So, yeah, nobody is <laughs> safe here. Yeah, well, I think, is that, it's Kubrick that you're talking about. No, 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 it's not Kubrick. It's, uh, uh, what's his name? The brother of uh, Brian De Palma uh, was a uh, famous physicist. Oh, oh, I see. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about directors who were killed. It's his brother was a physicist who was killed. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's just an association to what you were talking about. Yes, yeah. Brothers and directors. But but the thing is that his brother put stuff in his movies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, I have a lot of respect for Hoagland. He was one of the first mm-hmm. who came out with what you now have been doing a great work to, to corroborate, namely the fact that JFK and... Um, What's his face? The Russian uh, premier. Khrushchev. Um, Khrushchev, Khrushchev, yes. Yeah. Uh, that they had this cooperation. It makes so much sense. I want to go there, actually. Okay. But uh, just now I want to mention that Hoagland has has been very early out with the secret space program, many yes. of these concepts. But, you know, he, he's fond of speculating. <laughs> and he's, he's more than uh, indicated the fact that uh, his brother you know, went away from this plane for the wrong reasons. Yeah, because that's important. I think it's a very interesting point. Yeah. Um, Here's the thing. Hollywood and the media are both thoroughly infiltrated by intelligence groups. Let's let's not make any mistake about that. It's not, that's not a conspiracy theory. I can actually document it. You know, we can document it from the 70s uh, with Carl Bernstein's famous article in Rolling Stone, uh, the CIA admitted to having 400 paid assets in the media. Then, <laughs> uh, you might notice after 9-11, everyone who was a consultant suddenly on CNN as a homeland security person, you know, how did that happen? 
Um, Then, you know, recently, actually, is a very important disclosure, and it's been missed, and I want to point this out. It's on globalresearch.ca, but this is a a major figure in the German media who has a terminal illness and came forward saying that he planted a number of stories for the CIA in the German media. Uh, This is a story, I think, that should be followed up on, but there we can easily document uh, what we're talking about. So the point is, why are they doing that? They want to obviously sway public opinion for certain reasons, and they don't want people's curiosity to go into certain areas where they become vulnerable because of their activities, which are very often black budget activities that are illegal. These are black operations and things that they're doing they don't want to be accountable for, uh, but we definitely have to hold them accountable so, you know, I think what's important about all that is to understand the infiltration and how total it is. Uh, you know, whether it's a show like Homeland, for example, a very popular show on HBO, or some of these movies, you know, winning the Academy Award that are about heroic CIA people in the 70s. And don't get me wrong, there are courageous... Um, uh, what about this hit piece uh, about this sniper, the guy who was completely out of order versus Jesse Ventura? Uh, they tried to portray him as some kind of hero, oh, yeah, and yeah. it's obvious that he was one of the biggest, most crazy crooks. Yeah, well, this is Chris <laughs> Kyle and... Chris yeah. Kyle, typical yes. uh, ordered uh, programming. Yeah, absolutely, and I mm. think, uh, well, you know, his great claim to fame was to be this kind of vicious sniper and uh, in Iraq. And I, you know, my, the, the blurring lines here, the CIA, they, all these intelligence groups and a lot of the covert ones have great storytellers, uh, you know, really some of the best. I mean, even E. Howard Hunt had many uh, novels to his yeah. credit. They have great imaginations. Mm-hmm. That's why these guys get chosen because very often a lot of the disinformation campaigns they use require incredible imagination. James Bond, James Bond. James Bond, exactly. (laughs) Early example. Yes, Uh, there's no question about it. And Mm. I think when you, yeah, when you look at those stories, um, you see that not only do they have great understanding about how the human psyche works, but, you know, Ian Fleming is who you're talking about. He he really was able to show that this incredible control over you know, details and situations and scenarios. And that's the kind of thing that they have in disinformation. They have to be the best storytellers on the planet. That's why they get into trouble. We talked about some of the really big events, like the JFK assassination. The initial story was well painted out, but it always looked funny. There were problems, a lot of problems on the ground with that story that made it fall apart. But the actual story, the setup of this patsy who was like a Russian sympathizer, Cuban sympathizer, disgruntled and all that stuff, um, mm. shooting the president from Texas School Book Depository and, you know, the Secret Service being caught off guard, all that whole thing, and then him being eliminated by Ruby, and, you know, they painted all these scenarios that whenever you look into those scenarios, they all fall apart. Um, but the, the stories, the mythological template that they're using is something that they've used over and over again. And you can see how they put these stories together. They use archetypes, you know, the disgruntled loner. How many times does that come up in a false flag story? You know, they always seem to find these guys. Sirhan Sirhan happened a few years later, past that incident, and he was the same type of deal, except he was even better because he just wiped out his thinking so that he didn't remember what he was doing at all. Um, 
you know, so they, they certainly have these techniques. The point is we have to be able to read between the type of information that comes out through the CIA. You know, it's not like the CIA and the media sit down and say, hey, I'm going to run this story through you. They very often can even present to these newspapers, hey, this is the story, you're getting an inside source, and feed them what they're looking for. So, mm. um, you know, there are areas where in the media they have extreme vulnerabilities to uh, gullibility, never mind being in cahoots. So there's a whole kind of reform in the media that needs to happen about how they look at this type, this wave of information that they get from intelligence services. Yeah, yeah, we need to catch up because... Catching up is so important because, like I discussed with, uh, we didn't have time to explore it in depth, but uh, I must say Richard Dolan is a brilliant thinker because um, he can touch any of these subjects we've discussed easily. In fact, he's, right now his next book he's researching is going to be on false flags. So it's refreshing that he's moving into a new area, which is very untapped so far, uh-huh. but he brings his scholarly attitude there. But my point is, like he, he indicated too, they're so developed now if you look at back at uh, jfk and the older the you know the lone gunman not meme that they are planting <laughs> yeah. in us because what you're talking about is the same thing as mr farrell is calling social engineering yes and uh, so uh, but now, I don't know how, how far they are. I don't think they need this setup of second and third shooters and some rascals from some uh, disgruntled Cubans mm-hmm. uh, roaming around. If you look at a very fresh example, the Norwegian shooter, mm-hmm. the mass murder Breivik. Now, in the conspiracy slash alternative media, they were having a field day with that because obviously this needs to be just another conspiracy as all the others. But first of all, just like if uh, my tire goes flat, (laughs) it may be that I just uh, run over a spike, Mm -hmm. right? In the same vein, there (laughs) are examples of crazy people. But I've looked into this guy because obviously one of the reasons uh, I'm I'm in the same country and we got much fresher reports. And and, uh, because in Norway, it's a very naive media and a very naive system, Mm -hmm. but it's not as corrupted yet, although we're going in that direction, of course, as Uh everyone else, as in America. So it was much easier. And there were so many people involved. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows someone. It's a small country. So it's much easier to get better information. And, you know, on one level, that is an actual genuine case of a madman. But here's the interesting thing. When I looked into this, and I'm not alone, so it's nothing I can take credit for, but There may be foul play there, but in the programming of that guy, because what he was into in the years before, you know, the formative period Mm -hmm. uh, that made him do what he did, that's probably where something is rotten in Denmark. Mm And not in the actual event itself. And now that suggests to me that if this is a case of uh, something bigger, then it's so sophisticated that they, just by social programming, like they did with Sirhan Sirhan, that they can reach their mind. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. That they no longer, and, and that's the best way of doing it because there's no evidence trail. And that's what we depended on in order to make some sense out of things, in order to move it away from wild claims and into some actual evidence-based research. And, and that makes it very hard because with all the sophisticated technology that they have now, there's no saying to what degree they can influence matters with cleaner hands than before, if you catch my drift. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no question about it. That's a very interesting uh, story, the Norwegian killer, too. I guess what really stands out in my mind is that photo of him with all the Masonic regalia on. And, you know. Yeah, but I'm I'm promising you the Masons were useful idiots here. Yeah. Uh, But the more interesting lead in that direction is the so-called Templar. He was associated with a right wing group. Uh Uh-huh that may have had Mossad influences and uh, it's a deep thing. We could have a whole program on that. But there are these quasi-Templar, and I've interviewed a genuine Templar, so so let's not paint every Templar movement out there in the same vein, but there is this counterculture thing within right-wing extremism that have a romantizing uh, idea of Templarism, uh-huh. and we know that he has been influenced by people there, and it smells of intelligence uh, plants too. So we don't know, you know, how much they have been involved in this as an experiment. I don't know what they wanted to achieve because it backfired if they wanted people to, you know, people became more tolerant, more loving. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> of this. Yeah. yeah. So it backfired. Yeah. I, th- maybe, I think it maybe was an experiment if there was a degree of intelligence involvement direct in that outcome. Mm-hmm then uh, it must have been experimental. Yeah. That's just my view. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I mean, I think you can see in a series of these cases where we try to see patterns over and over again, it's patterns. And, you know, but very often the people themselves, you know, whether it's the Batman shooter or this guy, they, they, they'll have quirks and they'll have psychological issues or whatever it happens to be that make them fit the role. So it's not like you have to completely invent them. What you do in a case like that is take someone who's kind of ready-made for the part and dress them up for it and put them out there. Exactly. Uh, And spotting those people is something that they're really quite good at. So, you know, I think when you get down to the intelligence infiltration also, you have to understand when it comes to these stories, you might be dealing with elements that operate covert elements that operate inside those intelligence services so that one floor is not talking to the other floor in terms oh yeah like like hoagland say the lie is different on on every level level. yeah (laughs) and i think he's right about that uh and certainly you know in relation to uh, nasa for example Mm. um but i think it is fascinating when i get down to however even in this sense when you consider the government and the cia it's really the job of the media to expose those things, those programs would never be allowed to get off the ground if the media were not so cooperative. Mm. And that's a vital thing. It's the media that's failing. And I point to them more than anyone. And I'll tell you why. Because government services, politicians, bureaucrats, they always have some inside game where it's almost expected for the role. There are abuse of power issues. The media has to... Uh, you know, rebuke power. They need to investigate power. They need to keep power transparent. And that's what they're not doing. That's the main crisis, I feel, that we're looking at in the 21st century. 
with democracies around the world is the media is not doing its job. And, uh, you know, this is very important. There are a lot of themes that we can explore inside the media where they're not doing it, but one of them I call easy rebuttal. And easy rebuttal is, you know, is an example of media news manipulation. Uh, and so, you know, the executive teams that are involved in the news media, they understand something about the average person, that they have very little time to understand all the stories and information that are coming their way on a daily basis. So, you know, you pick up your smartphone, you're reading news. So what they do is they use a tried and true kind of marketing style principle where they employ this easy rebuttal to give someone a quick label they can place on something they don't have enough information uh, you know, to really judge the merits of the thing. They just want the label. So, you know, often in debates around important things, you know, like right now in America, the excessive vaccines or, uh, you know, mandatory vaccine use uh, Im- implemented state by state, uh, GMO labeling, uh, you know, where food groups are trying to get GMOs labeled on food. And so you get these preconceived memes that get trotted out there to serve as important one-liners that will allow you know, if you have a curious mind, it'll allow you to go back to sleep. So very often we see terms like, don't you believe in science? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the scientism has become a religion. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. They turned science into a religion. They have. And also, you know, it's that well, these things have been proven to be safe under expert supervision. And, uh, of course, what we know when you study it at all is that scientific studies can be bought and paid for. And... Real pressure can be brought to bear uh, when a political or a corporate force is trying to achieve a particular aim. So that doesn't mean anything that there is a scientific study. As a matter of fact, one of the most famous cases is that, you know, someone did a, a, a very interesting group did a study on Monsanto. This company um, did a study on Monsanto and found that they were responsible. Uh, some of the things that they were using were responsible for the bee colony collapse. And uh, Monsanto's response was to buy the company, to shut up the research. Wow, right. So, you know, this is what you're looking at there. We really have to be able to take a look at what's being used to convince you to do things. And if somebody says, what they're really doing is they're saying, here, here's science. Go out there and say to this other person, you're an ignoramus because you don't believe in science. Well, it's not true. It's just that you believe in real science, not bought and paid for science. So there's a really big difference. Yeah, it's so important to distinguish between the scientific method, Absolutely. which we can thank Bacon and Pythagoras and all these people in the old times, and science as an institution, Yeah. which is basically what you're talking about here. And science as an institution, just like the Vatican hijacked the... Uh, Christianity? Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, the, the institution of academia has hijacked and, and made because people today has a poorer understanding of science than, than before. Yeah. And yet they, and, and maybe that's a correlation there because the poorer understanding people have of the scientific method, the more they uh, put it on a pedestal and worship it as a religion with uh, these uh, priesthood people. It's an authoritarian dictate. Yes. And they can get anything through because it seems that society is going into a more secular direction in a way, but in a bad way in that they are uh, using it as a system weapon yes. uh, against the population. But listen, Daniel, these areas here are extremely interesting mm-hmm. and needs and deserves a, a deep debate. But I, because we have limited time, I want to take it even a step 
further and more deeper into into <laughs> the already very deep state. Yes. And that is to inquire your thoughts about something that we touched upon very briefly with Dolan and that I wish we could have gone deeper into. But we speculate a little, little around the concept of a breakaway civilization. And uh, a very important notion here is the question of owners versus players. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Let me throw out to you a little scenario. Let's say you are okay. some some regular dude who work in the military industrial complex, for instance, or the intelligence industrial complex. And at some point you are probed and inquired, obviously vetted already without your knowledge, to be invited into one of the levels of the deep state or the breakaway levels, if you like, uh-huh. because as you know, there's a program within a program within a program. The lie is different at every level and it, it provides plausible deniability. But you, let's say you get as deep as, let's take a, let's take a lunch trip to the moon. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, many people imagine that the oligarchs are the ultimate players. <laughs> and we have from people like Pharrell and others, we have, uh, substantiation of different power bases uh, because I'm not one of those who thinks that there's one group running everything. Yes. Obviously there's at least three groups just to be minimal there's at least three groups because there is the others who's out there whoever they are mm-hmm. who who bastards who doesn't interfere they could have helped us if they wanted they could have made people aware if they wanted they don't have to do any more interference than just saying no no you are being lied to, look. Mm-hmm. But th- there's them. Then there's the obvious power players on Earth. And that's where I see different factions, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then there is us, the people. So at least there's three, but uh, I think there's much more. But that's the minimal, absolute minimum. But then people tend to think that, okay, the oligarchs, the people who owns everything, they are running the show. But are they? Because owning stuff, owning the corporations, having the money in the banks, having the banks doesn't mean that you are on this little spaceship going to the moon. There are operators here. (laughs) And, uh, you know, if we track, I asked also Dolan of when did they start getting this technology? When did they start to play around with it? Who are they? Because obviously it's not the regular secretary working at the basic CIA building there are mm-hmm. dark aspects to these so so I think that let's say you are on a middle to high position in these covert intelligence groups you're in a position to report what you want to report so so do you think that it is as simple as if you're a Rockefeller if you're a Morgan if you're a Harriman then you actually know everything or, or do you recognize that having all the money and owning stuff doesn't necessarily mean that you actually know everything that's going on at every level. Well, you uh, you brought up a couple of very interesting things there. One of them is, you know, I always go back to uh, Joseph Farrell on that, which is he had a book, it was about LBJ and the JFK assassination, but he called it a coalescence of interests. Hmm. That's a very important phrase, and 
it's when groups get together for a united aim who don't necessarily aren't necessarily friendly with each other. I think that's an important thing to kind of contemplate. There's no central cabal. And this is an important point that you're bringing up about this. The cabal idea, by the way, which we see very often uh, in certain strains of alternative media is totally wrong. Um, mm. So, you know, this whole kind of Ben Fulford thing about the dragon family saving the world or something. These are the things I object to the most. But now let's mm. deal with the, the other piece of what you're talking about there. You split that off into three things, which was... That's a minimum. Yeah. I could split it up to many <laughs> well, more. Well, no, I, I, I like this, though, because at least it's practical to work with. So you split it up this way. You said some off-world group out there that's outside of our planetary civilization, uh, the powers in our planetary civilization, and the public. Mm. So uh, when you look at it those three ways, really, I guess the ones that we have to concern ourselves with is the second one. Yeah. So that second one has, uh, the, you know, the term that we're using is breakaway civilization. Like I said, NWO, uh, the deep state, the cabal, Mr. Global. So basically, if we're looking at the power players on our planet, that's where we need to be concerned with this idea of a breakaway civilization. Mm. Uh, the breakaway civilization, like we said, it's referred to by different names, NWO, deep state, the cabal, Mr. Global. But that idea that there's a group that holds the technology, advanced technology, and where they got it from, I think is very important. So the wild card is that in their possession is reverse engineered alien technology that they've gotten from an off-world culture visiting here and crashing, and that they have redeveloped you know, science by re-engineering these craft. Let, let me quickly interject that I actually suggest, and I said this to Dolan too, that it doesn't matter where they got it from, an ancient civilization, a natural development of human technology, or directly from, from our cousins or even more alien, because they have it. That's what matters. It's true. And it, it's dangerous to, 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 not dangerous, but it's contraproductive to go too deep into speculation of its roots because we may be gently pushed in a disinformation direction. Yeah, uh, although so, I think that, see, here's, here's something, though, to consider along that line. Mm. And I think that you're right. In the final analysis, it doesn't matter where they got the advanced technology if they have it. So the point is that they have it. Yeah. Uh, but, however, I think the uh, 70 years of UFO sightings, with us not, not knowing what that is, suggests that we got it from that. Mm. Uh, that would be my sort of small nutshell to save you another hour of discussion on that one. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, I, it's my personal belief that's where they got it. But I would say, you know, based on there's a lot of research strings that would lead you to believe that. And I don't think that all of them are disinformation. But mm. uh, I would say the idea is that so that's a wild card that it's in their possession. The other uh, possibility for this is the Nazi bell technology, which they were working on an alternate physics mm. in the Nazi Reich. So the idea was at the end of the war, they took this information. A lot of that is available in Farrell's work and uh, Nick Cook, etc. Igor Rakowski. These are fascinating researchers who've tracked where that advanced physics, advanced technology uh, went after the mm. war. And you know, it's pretty unanimous that it went originally to South America. And I think Nick Cook says it went to America eventually. 
But the idea is that the Nazis did achieve things which are not in our physics books and that they they created this advanced technology and used it to make themselves a post-war Nazi international a power player on the world stage. Exactly. They are one of the players I'm convinced. Yes. Um, I think that there's a lot of material that suggests that they are and that they have integrated themselves into a number. The, the descendants, at least. Yeah, descendants. Okay, right. Exactly. Mm. Um, but that they would still hold this kind of martial philosophy. Yeah, but see, that's the question. To what degree are they this cartoon Nazi today? Yeah. If you look at uh, the ownerships of corporations and stuff, you, uh, you mentioned vaccines. There's a lot of fascist elements in these things. So, so yeah, some of it they have, but it can also be perceived that they've left some of the more primitive, uh, let's say the racism. Like, uh, was it Dolan who said it, that they at least have the master-slave concept in that they are the masters and we, the globe, are the slaves? <laughs> the prize? Oh, I agree. I agree with that. You know, And does that remind you of the kind of corporate mentality that's been reshaping the world? Exactly. <laughs> um, and it is amazing, you know, if we just take a quick snapshot in our conversation, if we think about the world only 30 years ago, so say in the early 1980s, the factories from America and around the world had not been shipped off to Asia. This huge uh, globalism had not occurred, this global economy. And there were so many forces that weren't consolidated at that time that when we flash forward to now some 30 years later and we look at the amount of freedoms that are gone, uh, the inequality in incomes and the disparity between the 1% and the rest of everyone and that kind of centralization of Wall Street control, media under uh, the wing of six corporations, this thing has only occurred recently. I mean, mm -hmm. 20, 30 years is very recent when you look at history. And the only way to get out from under it is to look at it and see this is what's happened. So I think one of the really important things to do is to expose that. And you can do that in alternative media, you know, independent researchers, minor political parties do some of that, even some fringe groups do it. But the important thing is to look at who is controlling it. Who, who is controlling and who's being protected by the media? And so who's doing the protecting? Let's start with that. Well, the protection is coming from the corporate media. They're corporate controlled. The protection is happening through charities. Uh, a lot of the Rockefeller controlled charities control many of the things we see on PBS, for example, mm. um, which is, you know, huge. I'm sure the BBC has their own version of that there with the royal family. Um, corporate controlled political forms forces, Democrats and Republicans, of course, you know, there's so much money in it that it's very accurate to state what we're going to get in the 2016 election cycle is Goldman Sachs, Monsanto right or Goldman Sachs, Monsanto left. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's got to be two stripes of the same thing. So it really doesn't matter in Hillary or Bush. But this plays right into the hands of the third way. And that's what so many can't see. And, and there's... Uh, 
other alternative medias out there who I won't mention either, but quite frankly, in my eyes, are being useful idiots because we see a rising fascism. We see it in America, yeah. in the Donald Trump thing, in the, in its more cartoonish way. Mm-hmm. In Europe, I'm more worried because partly the institutionalized uh, infiltration of, of these, in some cases, actually, remnants of old Nazis. Mm-hmm. But uh, this new new uh, corporate fascism is taking over and you see it in people being more and more polarized uh, you you have more and more people who buy into these primitive uh, decoys of right-wing extremism as and i think it's what you call the third uh, force level. Yes, force, third yes. Force, yes, because it, they portray themselves as system critical. But if you set up, it's the old crisis. How you say you provide a crisis and then you provide a solution. Yes, yes. And it's a repetition of what happened in a more, like I say, cartoonish way in the 30s. But today in a much more complex way. And I don't think we will have people in riding uh, pants, marching in the streets type of uh-huh. fascism. But you see still that the natural way for people to go when they are really fed up and disillusionized, I'm talking about the masses, the public, yes. is straight into this right-wing extremism. And one of the things I respect with the dark journalism programs of yours uh-huh. are that you are keeping your system-critical, dissident focus very clearly anti-authoritarian without buying into these decoys or or how I should put it. Well, you're making a lot of excellent points there. And the points about Europe, I think, are very important. I actually think we could do a whole show just based on what's happening in Europe, frankly, uh, with the incredible waves of immigration and the response to it. Mm. And that kind of globalism and the multiculturalism that was forced from the top down onto uh, Europe and almost anticipating this kind of response, you know. So I think that these, there have been pressures that have been built up, and uh, I, I don't like the forces that I see rising there in relation to this kind of right-wing extremism that's coming as a reaction to this exactly. kind of an invasion of their culture as they perceive it. So, you know, mm. and so uh, there's so many factors to consider there because, of course, a lot of that immigration is coming as a result of American war activity in the Middle East. Constructed crisis. Constructed, yes, exactly. So it's not like a random thing that happened and they didn't anticipate it. Mm. Um, so that is very important. I, I suppose people are often, and I get a lot of emails about what is the remedy, what's the solution. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, we are, we're reporting these <laughs> things. We don't have all the solutions, but I, mm. I would have to point to the fact that if we can get transparent information, then we'll have greater awareness. Mm. And so it's almost post-alternative in terms of the reporting because we won't accept unsubstantiated information either from the mainstream or uh, from alternative sources. Mm. But so in post-alternative reporting, dark journalism, you know, will release things about false paradigms about the world, political leadership, etc., and the important thing, I think, one of the major solutions is to recognize where we're being harvested by the larger system, mm. you know, and it gets down to very personal things. You know, we've been talking about very large political movements here, but um, the harvesting happens in student loans, mm. in debt, in the entertainment industry. You know, so how is our time and our money being harvested? These are the types of things, 
if, if our awareness increases and we're not so gullible, you were talking about the Trump movement in America. Mm. I think that if we can start to step back from a lot of the circus of things that are going on, we'll, we'll have a chance to see these forces. And that's where a real genuine alternative media, you know, I call it post alternative because the first version hasn't really worked this way. But the post-alternative media can really do this. And that when I say dark journalism, it's just about really penetrating to the core sources and avoiding the mainstream media line, but also mm. avoiding the kind of wild third force activity. And uh, that is junk conspiracy, in my opinion. Yeah. Shows like yours are helping, contributing to maturing the alternative media because that's what needs to happen here. But when we talk about remedies, Dr. Farrell has suggested something that at the surface may seem like very poor and superficial. And if we had time, we could explore it deeper now. But I just want to mention it to you because you you will immediately understand. And that is, he says, <clears throat> winning the culture. Because all social reforms, all progressive reforms have come from bottom up. And like I said, like if the fascists today have left some of their primitive anti-Semitism or racism, it's not because they did it of the goodness of the heart, but because their sons and daughters and their sons and daughters again were influenced by the culture and it became an anachronism. So that if we own the culture, if we hold steady some basic values that we do not compromise, then they can push agenda after agenda, like this um, transhumanism, whatever. Uh -huh. If people are firmly, like, like say, no, a, a human is a human, and I won't budge on that value. I'll keep that. Then, you know, if most people, because I see that especially here in my country today in the current political scene, uh -huh. that uh, the polarization are smoking out all ordinary people. You see it on Facebook. You see it uh, everywhere. And you get those who are having their focus at other groups. Classical fascists, right? Split and rule. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. You have those that they don't have any solutions, but they know I refuse to, you know, buy into this because take a phenomenon like the IS. I refuse to call them ISIS because yes. I don't want to. <laughs> it's too bad for the goddess. <laughs> I think, yeah, right. Exactly. ISIS is this wonderful Egyptian goddess. Why give exactly. it to that uh, horrible group? But ISIL, I think, is the other one they're using. ISIL, we can call it. And they are... A typical example of you know how extreme can it get in people's ordinary paradigm because that's what people are, are looking they they know nothing of this breakaway secret space program thing mm -hmm. and, uh, and and extreme triggers like that get people now out and we can see who's who yeah you know where's your values that's something going on about among the masses but little time have to run up. I, I did ask you, I want you to clarify your view about the owners versus the players. We have mentioned the Nazis as one of many potential players today. We don't have time to cover all the players. But even if you're within the Nazi system, if you're, if you're within the traditional American intelligence Pentagon system, do you see do you see any autonomic group room for autonomic power bases within that? I mean, if you have access to such an exotic technology that you can influence people's minds or you can move from here to, to Andromeda and back, yeah. then you have a lot of practical power, even if it's uh, some uh, corporations like uh, Boeing or whatever who owns it. 
Yes. So, so what do you short? What's your thoughts about that? Well, it's very interesting. I I go back to the wild cards idea. What are the wild cards uh, that we think they have in their possession? And one of them, you know, we said was this Nazi bell technology mm. or a reverse engineered alien technology, however you want to slice it. So, or both. Yeah, or both, which is even more dangerous. You look at it and you say, well, you know, so they have access to advanced physics. But look, let's look at some of the things that we know about for certain. For example, the harp. Uh, style mind control that was based in the patent. And if you look at the work of Nick Begich, for example, so looking for ways to influence large groups of people through the ionosphere, and that would be to sway public opinion one way or another, that leads us to entrainment technology. And entrainment technology is something that we could understand is used, for example, to sell products or, you know, push a particular political agenda, whatever it happens to be. But it's something that can be delivered while you're in the comfortable space of just looking at your iPad or reading your email on your iPhone, whatever it happens to be. So that's something that we need to look at and understand and we need greater studies on, uh, I think. But certainly, if they have access to that type of information and that type of technology, you know, and also fantastic hologram technology, mm -hmm. talking about... Uh, and a secret space fleet, then obviously they are in such a way that they have broken away from us and they are forming an entirely different civilization from what the public has been funding. Mm. And that chasm between the two, I think, is why we're seeing so much disturbance in the world today, because mm. those groups that have access to that information uh, are not necessarily ethical. <laughs> and uh, so they have access to this advanced technology, advanced science, you know, so that comes along with it, mm. advanced medicine and this kind of global financial control. So it's too much control uh, isolated into a small area. But I think that there is something, uh, and, you know, occasionally we'll speak metaphysically about these things. Carl Jung talks a lot about the collective unconscious and how everyone on Earth who is human, has some knowledge or awareness of everyone else. And uh, so that collective idea is very interesting because that would mean these people who are so well hidden in our national security state, in our corporate institutions, the things that they have access to on some level, we have access to. Mm. And this is something that I think is important uh, because there are scientific studies about you know, linking great ideas that happen simultaneously around the world. You know, so if they've seen reverse engineered alien craft on some level, mm. that we're, we're all plugged into that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think all it takes is a careful weighing in our own minds. Is this possible? Does it seem like they have a secret space program? This stuff is starting to make sense, I think. And when we look at it, we see the unexplained phenomena of UFOs over the last 70 years. No explanation, nothing. Mm. You know, something... Well, there is, the, there is the simpleton explanation that there are space monsters. Oh, oh. And then, and then there's the opposite, which is the no-no, it's just swamp gas and runaway uh, yeah. balloons. Well, but no, nothing viable. I should say no. that. Yeah, no, because, because like Joseph Farrell said, if you, if you pitch out those two diametric opposites, you can easily hide the truth behind, which is neither, of course. Yeah, well, uh, obviously there's something operating 
in our skies and it doesn't have it doesn't conform to anything that we understand about aerodynamics or uh you know anything that we would see in our normal night sky too many reports too much information too many ex-military people coming forward mm. astronauts politicians i mean we we have enough i think of a knowledge bank to understand oh, yeah. Yeah. that that it's a real phenomena so now now we're jumping to new questions which is how does that impact what's going on on the ground and what we're seeing and if these groups inside the breakaway civilization have access to that technology, what are they dealing with? Exactly. How does it impact them? Yeah. And uh, I've often thought, you know, this this uh, Star Trek idea about prime directive, yeah. let's not interfere. That's too late. Sorry, mate. You can't get away with that anymore. But I think a much more plausible explanation is the very fact that our globe now is covered with weapons, even mainstream weapons, you don't have, let alone exotic weapons, that can be pointed just as much outwards, our Star Wars program, classical, but yes. just as much downwards. And that can explain for non-interference, because if we live in a prison planet, literally, if we have, which we have, a million uh, weapons pointed down towards us, we may be hostages, the public may be hostages, played by the power bases on Earth. Like, say, oh, okay, uh, are you, you think you can come here and reveal anything or interfere or whatever? See, if you try to influence our influence of sphere, we're going to burn. It's the burnt earth tactic that the Russian used in the Second World War. Okay, yes. Nazis, you're coming to invade us, we'll burn the country before right, you get right. anything. Yeah, right. that's, that's a potential. That gives me a little more sympathy, at least, for whoever these X factors are out there, because then they are more benevolent uh, as they often are portrayed to be by, by some sources. Well, it's important. I, I think the Let's go into this for a second. If you look at the reports around the sightings of UFO UFOs and craft that are flying outside of Earth, we have reports uh, from the space station, etc. There's so many. There's so many. So many. Yes. And if you go now, if we go down to Earth and we see people observing craft and even stories of the crafts interacting on some level with humans, hmm. they have. Uh, obviously a very big fascination whoever these uh who's ever operating those craft they have a great interest in our nuclear programs there's no doubt about it uh if you do the kind of examination of the cases you'll see over and over again the famous cases are all around nuclear bases mm. you know and the bentwaters case is a dramatic one that i think really spells this out but the point is, what you were talking about with weapons, then, if we see that they're really fascinated with our nuclear technology, then obviously that would be a reason for them to show up in such greater numbers starting after we uh, let off the first atomic bombs. Yeah. So if we work from there and we see this off-world culture looking at us, dealing with us, my guess would be that they'd be looking at us scientifically and observing what we're doing and not trying to interfere with it so much as, you know, kind of just getting themselves the best vantage point at which to observe us. Now, at a certain point, when we do research, we ascribe all kinds of attitudes and goals and drives and things to alien off-world cultures visiting here. Yeah, we, we project. That's Jungian, too. Yes, do. it's true. Oh. And um, But I think the point is, 
they don't have to have goals like we have goals. And uh, so it's very important to look at it as a phenomena that's very unusual to human reality. And the one thing that we can say is that, you know, in some cases we can track them. We certainly can see them. We can take pictures of them. They're having an influence. So they're important. Mm. So if we can get to that level of awareness and, and, you know, that that would be a very important step up. I don't think we have to ascribe any particular motive to why they're visiting here yet. No, but see, non-interference is also uh, an, an uh, interference, so to speak. It's also a cho- <laughs> choice. So, yeah. so, and plus, we know they have interfered uh, involuntarily and voluntarily. So it's not completely as pure. But but I, I catch a drift. My question, which is much more practical and it uh-huh. is where we should have our main focus uh, in, in the alternative field, is the second force again, because those are, for all intents and purposes, those who call the shots as far as we can perceive. And the uh, question I also raised with Dolan, uh, which is natural to raise with you here, is... To which degree do they shit where they eat? Because they seem to don't care very much about, you know, the environment and how how the globe goes. You you mentioned harp. They, you know, if the chemtrail thinks is a reality, that they really are playing with fire and and making Frankenstein monsters all over the place. And the question is, are they just ignorant and stupid and and megalomaniac or? Do they have a better alternative for themselves <laughs> or do they really care about this beautiful globe of ours? Uh, I, I think that's maybe the last question we can entertain now before we wrap this up. But uh, uh, I would like your, your views on that and, and also take into account that we can pinpoint the activities of the power players who are the Nazis up until the 70s and then wham. They, uh, the last, uh, well, the 70s, 80s, 90s, they seem to be disappearing from South America. Today, there are no physical bases we can point to. And indeed, their influence seems to have vanished in South America. Look at how radical governments are there now that the people can choose their own. Uh, but then again, they seem to be more present in the Middle East by proxy because the Islamism movement that we know they took over from the British the Wahhabism, the Salafism, these fanatical strains have been fueled by Nazis, as Levanda, Farrell and many others have pointed out. And they, these forces are now running amok, yes, uh, influenced by America. But, you know, how much is these dark aspects of American system influenced by the Nazis again? Because I, I'm certain it's not Obama who sits there and writes up these orders. <laughs> oh, yeah. So these, these are huge and complex questions. But if you could try to make a touch, a touch upon them, too, before we we wrap it up. OK, well, I think it's important. Obviously, I get from your question that you think that uh, the Nazis are one of these groups inside the elite corridors that are calling the shots. And I think that there is a lot of evidence like you're talking about through the work of Joseph Farrell and others, that uh, this Nazi international group certainly played a role past World War II and were a power player on the stage, behind the scenes, and everything from drug running to uh, the setup of the Bilderberg Group. Mm. So where they went afterwards is fascinating, and they certainly could be a power player. But I think... You know, what gets at me with your question about do they care about the environment and how do they feel about the world is this massive 
industrialization that is going on underground and all the building that's happening underground mm. and the things that we hear about rumors of and we also know that there are very deep projects going on underground and that does make you wonder about some of the plans they have for the people above ground <laughs> so certainly that that does Ouch. yeah it does bring you back to the nazis also who were obsessed with underground tunnels and all sorts yeah. of uh, you know, underground railways and, and the really setup of an entire underground city uh, bunker structure. So certainly the things that we've been doing and uh, how much of that is even under the purview of the government anymore, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But certainly there's some combination there of corporate and government interest that continues to do this. And we've been hearing about, you know, a lot of elites, uh, families and things like that buying places in South America or Africa that are very water rich, you know, and where they can kind of monopolize natural resources. So certainly they are prepared for a kind of dire environmental situation for the rest of the world, which will help them flourish, you know. Um, mm. But in terms of their overall opinion of the globe, I think that power has a kind of insanity to it and uh, that they may think you know, in their own way that they are kind of purifying the globe. That would be my, my real response. Yeah. Uh, if I think about it, the thinking goes deeper, but certainly I think that there's something twisted when you get to that level of power and that if you don't rise to the challenge of sort of helping the world, that there's a twist and a left turn that happens where, you know, you start to, uh, it's kind of a Messiah complex in a way. Mm. And um, so the way that I would view the way that they act, and this is a great question, I think, which is who's controlling the world really and why are they doing what they're doing? <laughs> $64 million question. That's it, mm. yeah. And I do think that that's a vital question. And uh, I'm not saying we can answer it here, but we can answer this, which is the getting to that question is being blocked by the media and the corporations. They do not want you to ask that question. It's a vital question. And uh, it's the heart of the work that I do with dark journalists. But also, you know, what we're seeing, the really exciting information we're seeing coming out of the alternative research community, like Catherine Austin Fitz, like Joseph Farrell, um, I think that we're, we're seeing a place, a viewpoint, where we can start to ascertain some of the answers to these questions. Yeah, right. Mm. And uh, that leads us to my final uh, question for today. Uh, it's uh, regarding the breakaway conference that I'm so happy to see that they had the wits and the sense to, to pick you for uh, his host, what they call it, the present yes. presenter. So, um, so if any people haven't noticed yet, <laughs> Daniel yeah, right. is gonna take over as as the conferencier, and uh, I also like the lineup for this year. Would you um, mind to to tell us a little about the space conference? Yes, um, well, it's the Secret Space Program Conference. It's happening in Austin, Texas, on the weekend of October thirty first. Is that your home uh, state? Uh, no, no, I'm I'm in uh, Boston. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, so I'm actually uh, Austin would be the other end yeah. of the country. You're a Yankee in deep in the <laughs> south. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, I would say that, um, you know, this conference is going to be really exciting because the lineup of speakers, I think, addressing this question of the secret space program, they're going to go into the technology, the psychology 
and the ramifications of the uh, financial aspects around this off-world. Yeah, I noticed the finance was heavy present. That's good, yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, some of the speakers are Joseph Farrell, like you were mentioning, incredible work on the Giza Death Star book series. And Linda Moulton Howe, who a lot of people who watch Ancient Aliens are very familiar with her or listen to Coast to Coast AM. She's their top investigative reporter yeah. and just an incredible researcher, really phenomenal. And it's great to have her involved with this. And she has a scholarly background. That's uh, important oh, to mention, I think, because in Coast, things are a little easily portrayed, you know, so... But yeah. uh, but she is uh, uh, she has her education in order so yeah mm. yeah well she has that incredible background of forty years as an investigative reporter uh, you know and all her work at Stanford I think that when it comes to alternative reporting she really is kind of a gold standard mm. in many ways mm. because she's able to uh, in a very fearless manner go after these stories with the same kind of journalistic tact that you'd, you'd go after a major political story. Mm. And really, I think this combination of Farrell and Linda Moulton Howe and Catherine Austin Fitz, the former assistant housing secretary and the president of Solari, is just incredible because her knowledge of the black budget, mm. Linda's knowledge of the off-world part and the intel cover-up, and then we have Joseph, who has incredible ability to grasp how the Nazi technology came forward from that era and was it was originally spirited away and has an influence now uh and he of course can take a good snapshot of what's happening now and some of the influences exactly the current players yeah no question Mm. uh that's important but then we also have uh walter bosley yeah that's fresh that's good yeah absolutely and he's going to do the airship mysteries which i think is very important because of course in the 19th century there were this incredible airship mysteries um so that's a nice kind of historic uh it is it is and then we also have olav phillips who does a, a great deal of research around the secret space program and sort of anomalies in space and that kind of more conspiratorial aspect but it's a very important thing to be represented here he's completely unknown to me but i'm going to check him out yeah yeah and i, I think i think you'll enjoy looking into his work but um we we are going to add someone to the lineup i can't mention it yet cool. <laughs> but uh as soon as it's available i'll let you know but certainly it's going to put another even bigger twist on this conference cool. but i would say uh the lineup is certainly all-star yeah um, so if you want more information on that, of course, you can go to secretspaceprogram.org, uh, and there are tickets still available there. Although it's selling out fast, there are also live stream tickets if you're, if you can't make it to Austin on that weekend of October 31st. And, uh, I'll also have details on it at darkjournalist.com. I didn't know that. They do a live stream uh, in addition? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a live stream ticket for the entire event. Did they, so, have they done this before or is that new for this year? Uh, well, I think that um, I think certainly the way we're doing it this year is new. Hmm. And uh, so it's available around the globe. So, you know, hmm. looking into that. The, think, what are you waiting for, people? Run and, <laughs> run and buy. Exactly. Because we've been recommended they, if they can, that they attend in uh, Texas. But uh, now uh, the whole world is included. That's what I love about the X factor that Dolan pointed out, which is the Internet. <laughs> that's that's the thing that can turn everything around that we've been talking about today. It is. It is well, and, and ventures like these are extremely important as a part of that counterculture catch up. 
Oh, yeah, I know. I agree with you 100 percent. I actually think of the Internet as 50 percent power for them, 50 percent power for us. They have the ability to, uh, you know, I'm talking about these elite groups, yeah, these yeah. globalists. They have the ability maybe to harvest us and invade our lives more easily because of the Internet. However, we get the other 50 percent, which is we're able to spread the information and the reporting about what they're up to mm-hmm. and, you know, make them more transparent, whether they like it or not. That's really important. That's a good point. But I think in its current format, unless they manage to somehow control the Internet content wise, I think that we we have 60 percent, not 50. <laughs> because um, when they start with this mass surveillance, it's like. They're shooting their, in their own foot because then they, I'll put this analogy to you. In the olden days, if you wanted to join a mystery school to become enlightened, by the way, to become enlightened, mm-hmm. you said that um, you were talking about the Jungian aspect. I didn't get to, to comment that, but oh, yeah. I think that it would be in their interest to hinder people to become enlightened. Precisely for one of the reasons you mentioned that we can easier connect with the archetypes. Oh, yes. But let's say you had to go through fire and water, you had to move cross three countries to get anywhere today it's the opposite you are bombarded with solutions obviously of course a lot of uh, crap no it's not gold everything that glimmers so so it's just as unattainable today because you have to be able to distinguish between uh, you know w- what's right and, and what's an illusion and it's the same problem they have because when, <laughs> when they swap up everything that's going on you're kind of protected from the extreme chaos because even if they have the best algorithms, obviously they don't have people listening into everything, right? So they need good algorithms to pick up exactly what they want. True. But it, it, there is some kind of protection in all that information that they collect, the layers of... Uh, of course, I'd prefer that we weren't <laughs> at all surveilled. Yeah. But if we are going to be surveilled, take the whole shit, take all the uninteresting stuff, and uh, maybe, just maybe, something will slip under the radar, at least when it's going on. Of course, it's stored, but at least when it's going on. When it comes to stuff like um, the breakaway civilization, I think it's a good thing they are, uh, you know, they are streaming this too. Maybe they can learn a thing or two. Oh, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, they, they'll probably want a briefing paper when it's over. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and I'm also saying, like Joseph, win the culture. I mean, that's how you can get insiders to leak stuff or just go out as a whistleblower. True. Oh, I agree with that 100 percent. Yeah. They see what's going on. They listen to a conversation. They get sympathy. They learn stuff. I'm telling you, if some of them were listening to us now, they would learn something, even if they were deep in it, because nobody knows everything anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Yeah. And uh, I think that your shows are very informative. Generally, there's a lot of great information, I think, in there. So. That's that's something that I, I think that they would tune into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least we try to entertain. Yeah, exactly. But we are a little more, how should we say, laid back. I'm more like a book reviewer in a way. You're much more in the front line there with your investigative, uh, dark journalism. And all the more kudos to you, because if they were going to take out one of us, you you, you would be the first one to go, I think, <laughs> oh, yeah, unfortunately. <right. laughs> but it is meant as a compliment. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's an interesting compliment. I like that. Yeah. But um, if you can try to look, let's say, 10 years hmm. into the future, it's obvious that your show will become uh, in the front line. So that means that if someone want to pull something that uh, the guy who revealed... Uh, 
he went to you, the guy who revealed the uh, uh, JFK thing. Oh yeah, yeah. You you may get people like that in the future too, and that's where the the security risk comes in, especially before you get to publish it, right? So no, I agree with you. Yeah, and there have to be precautions taken uh, exactly. when you hit a big story like that. And I I was careful even with that story when I got it. Douglas Caddy from Watergate has a major confession from a high-level CIA guy about the alien presence mm. and being associated with a major political event like the JFK assassination. Mm. That really hard-hitting story with great historical figures in it. And I said to myself, wow, my story did well. Mm. There's no question. And it got around and we did radio shows and everything else with it. Yeah, one thing is, you know, wild claims from anecdotes, but uh, there may be people with documents, you know, or, yeah. or uh, some kind of evidence that can be used. There's and no that's question. where you will be, be one of the most likely people to go to. Right. Yes. Especially if you look a little in the future, because we have to give the masses a little time to discover, you know, you, you, you haven't reached your peak by far yet. Yeah. So um, I think there's much more impact to be had and it will help probably the, the conference. So uh, so that's where I hope you're 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 cover your ass. Not to, I, I don't want to. It's a bad vibe to part with here, <laughs> but uh, you're a big boy. You can handle it. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I appreciate <laughs> You have that. thought about these things, I'm sure. So yeah. even me with this little show, you know, I feel very safe here in Norway, but uh, I'm invited to America next year oh great and uh, yeah but i'm uh, you know just putting my feet on american ground because uh, we all love america but it's also where the shit goes deep yes yes <laughs> no question about it well um how long have you had forum borealis of oh we're extremely fresh we yeah th three months that's fantastic Eighty thousand views in three months. That's I great. Like it. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. Uh, I like the train, you know, the general train of thought and the direction that you're doing it with. So, you know, I, I hope you do very well. I have to admit, between you, me, and the NSA, that uh, you were one of the triggers that said, "Okay, let's not just fool around. Let's do it now." Hey. Oh yeah. And now I think it's more important than ever that there are sane people who are able to distinguish, and and, and so we can have chats like this. And um, yeah. Absolutely. Good. Uh, good call. And I think that there will be a real, you know, there's going to be a real need for it. Yeah. Indeed. I agree. Yeah. But uh, all the more kudos to you. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm so happy for, for the, your existence. You're paving the way. And, yeah, that's great. I appreciate it. OK, Dan, do you have anything to add before we wrap it up or do you think we covered uh, as much as we could? No, I really appreciate uh, being on the show. If people want to know more about uh, Dark Journalist, you can go to darkjournalist.com and some of the shows, uh, special reports, interviews and documentaries we have there. Um, which are available free for you to watch. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate uh, being on Forum Borealis. Hey, I must ask you about that when you mention it. You, you have not commercialized your, your programs yet. Uh, you know, I put a um, – there is – because audio archives, uh, which you know, <laughs> are kind of a headache to make sometimes, yeah, yeah. I, I created an audio archive because I got some requests, and there's a uh, – you have the ability to subscribe to the audio archives ah. – and you can get some bonus material in there as well. Uh, but the majority of the, the shows, you know, the shows that I do are there because uh, they're video shows. They're available to the public. 
and uh, they're free. So it's just there waiting for it. Yeah, that's another sympathetic trait with, with your, your programming. That's also what we insist on keeping. But, you know, we see that we can't get by just by donations. So we're going to develop something similar, I think, uh, with the bonus. I think that's a good idea. I think you should. And, um, you know, you're providing a service and people really can get a lot from the information. So I think it, it has a value. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that often in the space you see over commercialization. And so I understand that reaction to it. I don't really try to put heavy commercialization on my work. I wouldn't go near it. But I would say that there is a, a point at which to support the work and make it sustainable. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's certainly, you know, it's something you should definitely consider. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, even we need to eat. So, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I agree. But uh, thanks a lot for, for coming on, uh, Daniel. It, it was a pleasure, an honor. Very interesting. I think people will enjoy this. Al, I appreciate the time and uh, I look forward to uh, hearing the show. Yeah, and good luck uh, at the space conference. I hope to see you there. Oh, me too. <laughs> but uh, I, I may actually chicken out and go for the uh, live stream. stream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be good. Yeah, it will. I'm sure of it, and we'll all see it eventually. Thanks so much, Al. Uh, hey, I hope your mothership provides you with plenty of free eye drops. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Exactly. See you on the flip side. Have a great one. That's it for tonight. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoyed our little exchange with a very bright Mr. List. If you want to support our work, please spread our programs and do drop us a coin. Finally, remember what Allen Ginsberg said. Whoever controls the media, the images, controls the culture. Tune back in to our next interview with a noteworthy dissident. Until then, together with the Borealis team, I sincerely remain your host, Al. Be seeing you. number one.